Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jim McLennan was one of the first fly fishing guides on Alberta's Bow River. A well-known writer and speaker, Jim has authored four books and written countless magazine articles. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss why we fish, how Jim got his start in the fishing industry, what the Bow River used to be like, and how we change as we get older. This episode is brought to you by Norvice. From their original 1970s prototype to their new legacy stainless steel vice, Norvice has been committed to one thing efficiency. The company's long-standing slogan, tie better flies faster, truly encompasses what the Norvice fly tying system does. The good folks at Norvice believe that you deserve to tie your flies consistently and in less time because of the ease and benefits engineered into this outstanding tying system. For more information, visit www.nor-vice.com and check them out on YouTube to see how you can maximize your tying time by relying on the functions and benefits of the tested and true Norvice. Also, if you haven't already, please go check out my new site, Anchored Outdoors. Over the last six years, many of you have been asking for videos of my guests in action, and that is exactly what we're doing over there. From masterclasses to free articles, we've taken Anchor to the next level and have got no plans of slowing down. Head on over to anchoredoutdoors.com and have a look at our membership options. I'm even temporarily offering all loyal listeners a 20% off code just as a thank you for tuning into the show. After all, Anchored Outdoors would never have come to fruition if it wasn't for you guys. Simply enter the code LOYALTYCODE20, no spaces, all lowercase, during checkout, and you'll immediately knock 20% off the total. 
Hop on over and use the coupon while it's still active, and I'll see you over there in our private community. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta. Do I have to say how long ago? <laughs> if, yes, you do. You do. I do. A long time ago. In, <laughs> okay. In uh, 1953. But that's not that long ago. Well, maybe. I'm not going <laughs> <laughs> to. I'll ask you when you get there. No, I won't. Cause, you know, <laughs> so Edmonton, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a, I don't know how I feel about Edmonton. Did, I'm assuming you didn't stay there. Uh, no, I, I, uh, you know, was born there and grew up there, went to university there and then, uh, moved to Calgary in about, mm, 76 or something. Uh, I, I moved out for a couple of years. I moved down in the summertime, uh, when I was in university. So to guide on the bow and then realized it seemed sort of silly to move back to Edmonton after the fishing season and then move back again in the spring. So we just, we got married in 77 and, um, yeah, we've been in Southern Alberta ever since then. Is Edmonton, I've only admittedly been in the city. I think I've done some fishing out of there, but not a lot. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like it's quite the outdoorsy um, community as, as Calgary is. Is that right? Well, it would certainly be right for um, for fishing, trout fishing and moving water. Definitely be true. There's good fishing around Edmonton. It's almost all lake fishing. And, you know, and I would say probably the whole walleye pike thing is, that's the big deal. And lots of ice fishing because there are quite a few lakes. But there are, there are some good, uh, what they call pothole lakes, which are small stocked lakes quite near Edmonton within an hour's drive that have pretty good fishing. Um, and I, that's, I fished there when I first started fly fishing. And also we spent our summers in Jasper Park. When I was kidding, my parents used to pull a trailer up and we'd stay in a campground. And, and that's where I started fishing. And that was almost all lake fishing too, which is kind of funny because I'd, I fish lakes almost not at all now. Although that was, you know, the first, the first places I fished were lakes, but I always, always kind of had the desire because in all the, the reading I was doing about fly fishing, it was, it was moving water that really seemed to be the the big deal. And, and so I, I was intrigued by that. And, you know, that I confirmed that as I spent more time on moving water. And that's just about all I do now. Nothing opposed, nothing against lake fishing. I think it's probably more technical and more difficult to understand than stream fishing, but I'm, uh, I don't have time for both. Yeah, I understand. Well, it helps having your timeline because if you were really gung ho about fishing in the seventies, that puts a lot of things into into context for me anyway. So just going back a little bit further to when you were in high school, were you keen on fishing then as well? Yeah, I, I was. <clears throat> Let's see. I um, I started fly fishing, I think, when I was 12. My dad was not – he was always interested in fishing, and he already had – he always had intentions of taking up fly fishing, and he got all the stuff, but he never – kind of got around to really getting deeply into fly fishing, but he had some friends that were, and uh, notably in that group, it was a, a great pal of his, Lee Perkins, who was the, the owner of the Orvis company. And now prior to buying Orvis in 1965, Lee was in uh, in the same sort of business my dad is. My, my dad was, he sold, my dad sold automotive equipment, Wholesale, like he was 
and Lee represented a company that made welding machines. And Lee is, is a great guy and he's, he's, he still is. He used to come up, he would always schedule his sales meetings to Alberta to see my dad and, uh, for their annual, you know, pitch on the new product or whatever it was. He would always schedule those in October so that they go duck hunting. Um, the first time he came up, he realized my dad was an avid duck hunter, which he was. And, and, uh, so they would, it'd always be in October. And the other funny thing is back then you couldn't hunt on Sundays in Alberta. So my dad would always schedule the sales meeting at, the, at his shop, at his store on Sunday. So they wouldn't lose a day to hunting when, when Lee was up for his thing. So they, that's where it started. And, uh, after he, uh, Acquired Orvis in '65. Uh, Lee sent my dad a bamboo fly rod as a, as a gift, which my dad never used much. I used it a little bit and broke it, of course, because I was you know 14 or 15 years old or whatever. And uh, so that's kind of uh, where the the fly fishing thing started, more from friends of my dad's than than through him. And that's you know I've had a long. I, I don't have any formal connection with Orvis now, but I did work for them as a sales rep for a few years and. So that that goes back a long ways, the the Orvis connection. Do you stay in touch with Lee? Yeah, a little bit. Not not um, not really often. I forget how, he must be. I, sh- I should have looked this up. He's close to ninety, and he still um, fishes a lot, hunts a lot. Uh, we were down there. He has a place in Wyoming, and. Uh, Linda and I and our daughter and son-in-law were down there, I guess it was six years ago, and spent some time with them fishing with them in, in Wyoming. And I've, I've, I, I'm in contact with them some. His, his wife is actually pretty active on Instagram and that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, uh, not very long ago, she posted a picture of Lee with a, a great big bass he caught in Florida. And so he's, uh, he's an amazing guy. He's been a really uh, a mentor to me, and not in a formal way, and he would never – you know, think so probably, but he's, uh, I've learned a lot of stuff from that guy relative to fishing and hunting both. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have gathered that. Okay. So then you graduate high school and I'm assuming you went to college. I did. I went to the U of A and I I got, actually got an education degree. I started out in in the science faculty because I thought I wanted to be maybe a wildlife biologist or you know, one of those guys who tags bighorn sheep or, I don't know, some, those are the kind of things I thought were interesting. But I, I never got, uh, I couldn't sort of see that at the end of the the Bachelor of Science degree I was, you know, enrolled in. I, we were doing, you know, dissecting smelly fetal frogs and stuff like that. And I thought, this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. So anyway, I, I switched out of the science faculty into education, but with an ulterior motive. Uh, uh, the other thing that's always been big in my life is music. And I really wanted to get some better music education, but I didn't play uh, a concert instrument. So I couldn't get into the bachelor music program. So the backdoor way to get some music training was in education with a music major. So I got a, a, a education degree majoring in, in, uh, in music. Yeah. Cause you play the guitar, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and you play well on a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard you play. I think you play beautifully. So now, talk to me about music. Then, did you end up going and doing something with that? When I was doing the guiding on the bow, uh, that was in the summertime, and I was uh, I was playing music in the wintertime, mostly at that time as a I was trying to do it as a solo, you know, 
solo act and and I was a starving starving musician in the wintertime and a starving fly fishing guide in the summertime. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've continued to play. Uh, I did kind of get away from it for quite a few years, but got back into it maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I, it's not something I ever would plan on, you know, making a great deal of money from. Uh, but I really, really like to do it. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And I, uh, I'm as, I'm as hooked on music now as I've ever been, really. So. Guiding on the bow, was that, was that the seventies or? Well, let me uh, see, 40, started, yep, from the, yeah, mid seventies to the mid eighties, probably. What um, was it like back then? Was it busy or was it still pretty quiet or is that relative? Oh, it was quiet. It was quiet by, by any, um, any way you want to measure it. When I started, it was in conjunction with a, with a tackle store that my friend uh, ran and he thought, well, we should start a guiding service on the river. And so that, whatever that was 1975, I mean, initially there was basically me uh, and we added some guides through the next, you know, five years or so. And what really made, made it grow was we, we uh, started inviting some of the, the big name American outdoor writers to come and fish. So, you know, they came and, and, you know, in the late seventies through the early eighties, the, the river was really, I mean, it's still really something, but then, I mean, there was, there was nobody else, not nobody fishing it, but not very many. Um, I'll give you an example to put that in perspective. Uh, I remember one day having kind of an argument with one of our other guides because, uh, I was going to do a certain stretch of the river. Uh, I don't remember which one, but, you know, 10-mile stretch of the river or whatever. And I said, well, I'd like to do this one. And he said, but I wanted to do that one. What am I going to do if you're in the same stretch of river? <laughs> so, like, two boats was too many. Those, <laughs> those days are gone in, in, almost everywhere <laughs> now. So, so you're, the, you're the heart of it. Because that's, if I'm, tr all the timelines right now while you're speaking are all kind of filtering back into my head. And you're right. It was all kind of a boom and they were writing about it. And I didn't really know where it started, but you're saying that you were there right at the beginning. It was you and your crew. Well, when the, yeah, when the, uh, the publicity started, uh, yeah, I was, uh, there. And I, as I've told a, a number of people, it was a great thing for me, um, because all these guys, all my heroes wanted to come and fish the river. I was puttering around down. So I got to, to fish with almost all of the, the fly fish, my fly fishing heroes. And they didn't come because they wanted to fish with me. They wanted to fish the river. And when they got here, I was what they got. Right. You know, so, it was, <laughs> it was, so I learned a lot of stuff. And uh, I mean, it was a wonderful thing to be able to have spent all those you know, a lot of time with a lot of the greats of the sport, you know. So I don't know anybody who's probably as lucky as I was to be able to do that back in, if you want to call that a golden era of fly fishing or something. So. How did you reach out to them? It's always so interesting to me. I mean, obviously you'd have to write letters or did you get on the phone? Well, a lot of that was done. I wasn't, I wasn't running the company. Um, so I was working for my friend, Russell Thornberry, uh, who he did all that. He sort of set it all up. And I don't know how he did it. Actually, it didn't take very long. When, well, actually, I, I, I got Lee Perkins to come up and he, he wrote a thing, uh, after he and his day, his son Dave fished one September day with me. 
and I had great fishing. And he wrote a story about it in the Orvis News, which is their, I guess still is their in-house newspaper, which probably even then had a bigger circulation than any of the magazines. So that one thing got the word out. And, and then I, uh, I think some of the other guys started calling and checking and seeing, you know, I'd like to come up and fish and write about it. What, you know, what do I have to do? And so I think Russell reached out to some of them and some of them probably reached out to him to come up. So here's a question for you. If you could do it all over again today in 2020, say that you had a river, not very many people were on it. You were in your twenties. Now with the internet and the, the difference in access, would you do it again? That That's a very good question. And I don't know. I, I, I have, I've thought about that sort of thing a lot. Uh, cause I was definitely involved in bringing attention to the river, to the bow and to the other streams in Alberta because I wrote magazine articles and I wrote books about it. Um, I did give it what I considered careful consideration before I, you know, wrote about them and, uh, was kind of convinced that you, some places I, I think you need to keep secret <laughs> um, and some places need to have people know about it. And, and a river as unusual as the bow is flowing through a city of now over well over a million people and subject to all kinds of different influences from irrigation to, to the city and uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, somebody has to care, you know, and somebody has to speak up and, and history has always shown that the the people who have the greatest concern for the resources, the people who enjoy it. And so I, you know, I thought, well, yes, I, I'm okay with doing that. If it came along now, it would depend on the situation. You know, if it's a, if it's a place that needs some help uh, and, you know, is under some kind of a threat, then, yeah, maybe I would. Um so I don't know. I, and I don't think I can particularly take any credit for this, but perhaps the bow is still a great trout stream, partly because so many people care that it remains so. Uh, and, uh, you know, if nobody cares, nobody's going to do anything. And so one of the surprising things to me, you know, people always say, well, the bow, it isn't what it used to be. It's all crowded now. And, if you had asked me or any of the people who were doing this at the time, you know, in the seventies or whatever, they said, well, in the year 2020, there'll be a million and a quarter people in Calgary. How do you think the Bow River as a trout stream is going to be? We'd have probably said, I don't think it'll be doing very well because, you know, how could it with that many people and, you know, all the things that, you know, big populations of people bring, but, it still does. And so the, you know, the provincial governments and the city have slowly come to realize there's value in, you know, something like the bow here. And unfortunately, when you say value, that means it has a dollar value to it, but that's the only thing that really gets anything done. So if they think it's worth protecting because it's bringing money to the city, well, now you're talking, you know, so did I avoid the question? Well, I think he handled that well. Um, what's the story with the bow and the fish in it? Are they natural? Were they stocked? They're, the fish are rainbows and browns, neither of which are native. Um, the browns were introduced, I want to say, again, if I had been really clever, I'd have reviewed some of the stuff. I think, I can't remember, maybe 1915 or something, 
you know, in the, the story, whether it's really true or not, it seems to be the only report on the source of the brown trout is that uh, uh, there was a hatchery at Banff, a fish hatchery, and they had some, you probably heard the story, and the, the truck was heading for a lake somewhere and the truck broke an axle near a bridge over a little tributary to the bow. So the, you know, the, I guess the driver of the truck, they, they weren't going to get where they were going. So he just opened the door and let them fall into the, <laughs> into the creek. That's the story. Maybe it's, you know, urban legend or rural legend. I don't know. But um, certainly that is the only record of any, any stocking of the brown trout. Um, it might've been 1910. I forget. Um, and the rainbows, there's no specific records, but rainbows were commonly stocked in a lot of water in Alberta in uh, the probably 1940s, somewhere around there. But there, neither one of the native browns, of course, are native to Europe and uh, in the British Isles. But um, the rainbows, they the speculation is they came from California steelhead stock because they were also used a lot uh, in then. But they. They have not been stocked for a long, long time. Alberta stopped stocking wild trout in moving water in the 1950s and was one of the first places to do that. Montana didn't stop it till the 70s. But Alberta biologists uh, figured out that the best thing for these streams, if we want to have a healthy population of fish, is not to stock them. It's to, to let, they'll, they'll fill up on their own if the habitat's there. And that, you know, that's still, that's still true. Yeah. And if anyone wants to really dive into, into that story, I podcasted a couple hatchery biologists recently on my other show called Into the Backing and they dive full into that study. It's really interesting. Now, Jim, you, this all makes sense that you started writing back then because what a lot of people might not realize is for ages, you were my editor over at right. Fly Fusion. Uh, yeah. And you didn't, you didn't send me any nasty emails. I don't think you helped me become a better writer. I appreciate it. I still sometimes go to, to write something and I'll, and I'll remember like amidst instead of amongst and I'll be like, Oh no, Jim told me that I need to watch that. And, um, how did that all happen? Oh, becoming an editor. Well, that was, I don't know uh, how that part happened. The, the writing part, I, I was, I, I like reading, uh, about, especially about outdoor stuff, especially fly fishing and bird hunting stuff. And I, for a long time, I thought I would like to try writing a story. It took me forever to, to try it, but I did. And uh, I don't know what it was 1979 or something. And, and I sold it to a magazine and you know, I thought, Oh, that's kind of cool. So I, I just did it cause I like to do it. And, um, the editing thing, I don't really know how that came about or because I haven't edited fly fusion magazine the whole way along. I certainly didn't start doing it. I, I guess Derek bird probably was doing it. Uh, for a while. And then, uh, I don't know, I just got the call from Chris or Jennifer and saying, would you like to edit the magazine? But it was a natural evolution. You didn't go to school or something to be a writer, did you? Or No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. In fact, uh, I took some English classes when I was in university, but I paid no attention. I, I scuffled through and I, I probably passed, but I was not, the interest was not there yet. So no, I didn't. The editing thing just came from I guess learning over time and what you're talking about, just paying attention to what you put down, not being so in love with what you just said that you can't kill it. If it, if it needs killing, yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> right. And so um, I was happy to kill other people's stuff too. So. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm jumping around here. Let me get back to your timeline. So, okay. So you're guiding on the river, you're popularizing this fishery. And then how long did you end up guiding for? 
Well, I think, as I said, I think I started in 75 or 76. And then in, uh, in 1982, uh, with two, uh, fishing friends, we started a fly shop, the first fly shop in Calgary called Country Pleasures. And, um, I guided the- Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Everything is just clicking. You know, what's oh. really sad sometimes when someone's so close to you, because I, I feel like I've just, I feel like you've been in my life for a long time. We go on a fishing trip, you're there. I go to an adventure there. You're on an email chain, you're there. Sometimes someone's in front of you so much that you don't even see them. I mean, all my worlds are colliding right now. So Country Pleasures was not started by the Giffords. It was started by you? Uh, yeah, it was not started by the Giffords. Um, it was started by Neil Jennings, Ron Dutcher, and me in, in 1982. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Sorry to hijack there your story. You keep, keep talking. So you started a fly shop. Okay. I started the fly shop and uh, I, I guided uh, some, I think maybe the first year we were open and then it became clear you couldn't do both. You couldn't, couldn't be on the river and in the shop or, uh, I mean, it just, it was not working very well. So I basically stopped guiding, you know, whenever that was 83 maybe and, uh, and just focused on the store stuff and we ran our own guide service and that kind of thing. So. I didn't do it all that long. Whatever it was, 76 to 83, maybe. Okay. And then how long were you in the shop for? I was in the shop uh, 18 years uh, till 2000. And uh, then I went to work for Orvis as a, as a, a funny, funny title, a regional business manager. That's what my card said, but it means sales rep. So. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And then along the way, you've met Linda in here somewhere. Well, let's see. We would have met in probably about 70. Oh boy. She's, she might know. So I got to be careful. Yeah. Maybe 70, <laughs> 74 or something like it, 73, maybe something like that. Yeah. Okay. Cause she's an avid ang- angler and an instructor as well, right? Yes. Yeah. We both, we both teach and, and she loves to fish and is really good at both the fishing and the teaching and is a really good photographer and stuff too. So it's, it's a nice, you know, we've been able to do something we both are passionate about and, and you know, almost make a living. <laughs> almost make a living. Uh, what about the schools then? So you guys had the shop for 18 years. Where do the schools come into play? Well, when I, when I left Orvis, um, we had to decide, you know, what are we going to do to make a living? Uh, and so we, I remember we, we spent quite a long time, Linda and I did kind of, you know, doing the imaginary scenarios. Well, if we could do this, if we could make this much money from, from maybe can we teach fly fishing schools in the summertime and then, you know, carry on with the writing stuff in the winter and a little bit of music thrown in here, how would it look? And, and so that's really what we've done. Um, so I guess we've run our own, you know, fly fishing school or instruction entity, as McLennan fly fishing since 2004. So whatever that is, uh, 16 years. Wow. And so that, yeah, so that's kind of been, uh, one of the many ways we sort of cobble together a living and, you know, none of the things we do on their own are, are enough, but you know, gathered together, they've, they've, they've kind of worked. So can we talk a little bit about just the progression internally and, and kind of the, the ups and downs of all of this, because right now, as a man in your sixties, you're talking about a life that a lot of people in their thirties 
are, and maybe even forties, maybe twenties, you know, but a younger generation is, is looking to achieve or to follow, you know, follow in your footsteps, do something similar. I think I, I know that there's a lot of this, this fantasy mindset that it's going to be not easy as such, but you're going to be so happy doing what you're doing that it's not going to feel like work. And, and sometimes I like to just kind of nip that in the butt and talk about the realities of it. Can you talk to us a little bit about your roller coaster? I mean, when it's good, when it's bad, um, maybe let's start at guiding. When did you know that you were done guiding? Uh, well, that was more, um, because of the, the reality of having the store and, uh, you know, I had to know what was going on and contribute to what was going on business wise in a, in a, you know, retail store. So it was, I mean, we all kind of agreed, at least that's why I remember it, the three of us that I, I just can't be on the water and then also know what's going on here. Uh, so that, that was a pretty easy decision. Um, but it, you're right. There, there's a, you have to have a certain temperament in some manner. I've never um, been able to sort of get away from, that's not quite true. I would say second guessing myself with guiding. I, I initially for, for quite a few years that I did it, I would come home at the end of the day. And if it hadn't been, you know, as good as everybody hoped it would be. And there's lots of days like that. I would, you know, I'd lay in bed saying, I should have floated that other bank. I shouldn't have stopped in that spot. Yeah, that was a bad idea. You know, maybe I should have done that other float. And you just can't do that. You do the best you can when you're there and then you got to just, you know, walk away from it at the end of the day. And I, and I, the teaching is like that too. I mean, a lot of what we do is, well, we teach sort of beginner schools, which are partly indoor classroom stuff and partly uh, dry land casting and then some stuff on the water. We also teach intermediate level schools for people who fished a while who want to, you know, get better at something. And those are all on the water. And I have a, a hard time getting past what I think people's expectations might be <laughs> because if they've, you know, know, know me by reading my stuff or whatever, I kind of think, Oh, they figure that because I wrote a book or something that if they come out with me, they're going to catch 47 fish. And um, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I'm gonna, hopefully <laughs> I can teach them some things that'll help them catch fish beyond today. But I always worry that, they're always a little disappointed that, yeah, I learned lots of stuff, but I didn't catch as many fish as I thought I would. That, I don't know if that people are really like that, but that's kind of in my head a little bit. And so um, I've never been able to ditch that. It makes you try hard, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It puts a lot of pressure on. Yeah. And I don't, as I say, I don't know if that that's really what people are thinking, but it's just the way I kind of assume they're thinking. Yeah, no, I, I can tell you for a lot of people, that is what they're thinking. And I don't think it's a deliberate thought process. It's just, this guy must know what he's doing. And because he's the best, I have a chance at catching more yeah. fish. And I would like to think they do, just not that day. <laughs> right. After that. <laughs> yeah, when they, exactly. They practice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then you do whatever you, what 90% of the people I speak to who are considering um, starting a new career do. You have a fly shop. What about the ups and downs in the fly shop? Because you hear varying reports, but a lot of the fly shop owners I speak to really hate it. And a lot of the shop owners I speak to really love it. So what was it like for you? Uh, well, it, it was good for me because I, I, I needed to do something. And the only thing I knew anything about was, was probably 
fly fishing. So it, it made sense, uh, and I was happy to do it. It is not easy, um, not an easy way to make a living. There's very few people. There would be some, but very few people who would have made a lot of money in an independent fly shop. Um, and in recent years, a lot of them, even some of the ones who were very successful, have gone out of business. And, uh, you know, what, and when I was doing the sales rep thing, I, I think I had a pretty good perspective on it because I had, you know, been in the shop for 18 years and now I was being a sales rep and calling on shops. So I could relate to their, their problems and I knew how difficult it was. And, um, you know, th- there were a lot of, quite a few stores, quite a few guys get into uh, a fly shop because they they fish and they think it would be a neat idea. And so, so you can have a, a, a fly fisherman who starts a business or you can have a businessman who starts a fly shop and the latter are more successful. You know, they have to have some interest obviously in the sport, but um, if they don't understand, you know, the principles of business and bank loans and all that stuff, which is not my natural habitat either. And I'm still not good at that, but I had to sort of struggle with it. I mean, you got to know that stuff as much as you know how to double haul, you know, because <laughs> it, and these days, you know, with the um, one thing we never had to deal with, at least not very much, just a little bit, was Internet sales. You know, that's a huge thing to try and uh, as well as the competition from other stores. There's more stores or certainly around my part of the world than there were when I was doing it. But uh, that great unknown factor of, you know, the online sales or that's something you really got to think hard about. If you're going to start a fly shop today, I wouldn't want to be negative to somebody, but I would want them to think really carefully and to get some good business counseling before they just leapt into doing a fly shop. What do you think is the number one thing that's overlooked in starting a fly shop or in operating a fly shop? I think when I was with Orvis, they used to tell us that the greatest cause of uh, fly shops going out of business was being underfunded. You got to be prepared to lose money for, three years if things are that you know that's very very normal um so if you think i got enough money you know to see us through the first year or two that's not enough <laughs> you know you gotta you gotta have enough to to really withstand the the rainy days and and the, the maybe more so in the west where i am uh things like drought and floods and forest fire seasons and <laughs> pandemics <laughs> not that you prepare for that yeah right um there's a lot of you know unknown factors that you've got to be able to to weather financially um that you know you don't put in a business plan but they can show up so what about the evolution of you know your own evolution through writing i remember i wrote an article some time ago that you had edited for me and it was i can't remember it's been quite a few years now but it was about I was writing about not wanting to go fishing that morning. And I remember you saying that you've been, you've been there. Didn't we correspond about that a little bit? We did. We did. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think a lot of people, I know for me at that time, I was going through a real confusing part of my life. I was so gung ho. I wanted to fish every single day. And then all of a sudden, and I think that's what I'd outlined in that article. I had gone to brush my teeth to go fishing and I didn't want to go. I think I wanted to drink coffee instead. 
And I was very confused by that. And, and I, and now and then you wondered what, what was wrong with you probably. Yeah, right? that's right. And, and now I, as a more mature adult, I understand exactly what was wrong with me. But I think a lot of people who are listening might, may have that, a similar situation and they don't know what's wrong with them. Can we kind of talk about, about that and, and what that means when you wake up one day and suddenly you don't want to go fishing? Yeah. I mean, I guess it can be different for different people. I, I think it's hopefully kind of part of the natural evolution of things. Once you've done it a while, I mean, it's not that I, and I've certainly, um, my intensity has, has, uh, <laughs> slipped or whatever uh, over the years. And some of that is just age. I know that happens because it's happening to all my friends <laughs> who are this, you know, same age or older than me, but it's, it's kind of natural. You know, you, you get, so it doesn't matter so much. It's a real cliche to say it, but you know, it doesn't matter so much about the fish. It's, uh, I, I like going. And I like catching fish. I like catching them in certain ways. If I can't catch them the way I want to catch them, I say, okay, I'll try again next time. Not that drive is not the same, and that's for sure. Um, and I think some of that is an evolution of one. You know, you caught a bunch of fish, and um, I, I don't know. Sometimes I do question what we prove by catching a fish anyway. <laughs> that's another whole thing. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing but, that um, I end up facing often. And I go back and forth on it depending on the species. But sometimes I'll catch a fish and I'll, I'll just be, I just have this really strange moment of what, why does this matter again? Like I, it's, <laughs> it is so silly because back in the day, I'd be so stoked about it. But every once in a while I get hit with this real harsh slap of reality. That's like, yeah, but why does that, why does this even matter right now? I mean, is there something deeper to that or is it, is it just like all of a sudden when, one know. day you're seeing the light for what it is? I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a sticky, <laughs> sticky spot. Um, and like a lot of us don't want to talk about it. I know when my husband was like, don't you talk about this stuff when you're podcasting? Cause people will think you're losing the passion. And it's like, well, hold on, hold on. I'm mm -hmm. not losing the passion. There are certain species where I can tell you right now, I would be, I would fly around the world to go and catch, but there are other times and days and fish where, and I'll admit it's usually on a day where I've got other things to do, right? Like if I, mm -hmm. if I'm, if I've got more important things to do, but I'm going fishing, those are usually the days where I'm like, why did I just spend the day doing that? I really have other things that are more important to be doing. Um, but I don't think it necessarily means that you're losing the passion for fishing if you get hit with that that slap of why am I doing this again? I, I think it's something deeper. Hmm. Uh, okay, what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Do you think that? Whoa. Do you think that? <laughs> no. I wonder if, as fly fishers, if we, if there's this. I mean, so many of us start as conventional anglers, and we start to go and you know, get our fish to, to bring home to eat. And, and I'm just going to kind of stammer here because I haven't actually, I wasn't going to talk about this. So I haven't really thought about what I'm going to say yet. I'll just word vomit and see what comes out. But, um, you know, I feel like we start as gear fishermen. We catch our fish to take home for dinner. It's exciting. We want to catch more fish, obviously, because it's so exciting. But then we get to the point where maybe we can't take those fish home. We have enough, or maybe it's a species you can't take home because it's illegal. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you're so focused on catching more fish. Then you get dialed into wanting to catch the biggest fish. And then you want to catch the biggest fish the hardest way. And then I feel like to complete this circle right before a lot of us end back at going to catch fish to take home again to eat, I feel like between those two 
junctions, there's like this little tiny halfway one that makes you consider why you're doing it all over again. Does that make sense? Like I can see the circle in my head mm-hmm. coming all the way around 360. Oh, yeah. And then right as I get to like 340, there's this like little tiny nodule that's like, well, <laughs> do you really want to dive in from the beginning again? Like what, what is the, you know, what is the point of it all? Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. I, I haven't, um, I would say I haven't gotten to the point where I, I want to catch fish and take them home to eat, but I will also say that's not wrong. Um, taking fish home to eat where it, the, you know, it's in a place where it can be, the fishery can be sustained or it's a put and take fishery. That's not wrong. That, that's where this came from. This is a blood sport. Oh, so you never you know, came um, back to, th- to that, to wanting to, to take fish home again. Um, I, I think a lot of, and I'll preface by saying so many of my friends and even other anglers that I know are hunters, right? So like a lot of us mm-hmm. have circled back. The, the more we've gotten into hunting, the more we feel the need to take some of our fish home. But that yeah. didn't happen for you? No. And, and I don't mean to, I'm not trying to be a snob about it. I guess most of the places I fish these days, you can't take them. Um, I, I do like the idea of, uh, taking, you know, going someplace and catching some a bunch of little brook trout and taking them home and eating them because they're so good. And I'm not, I'm not opposed at all to the premise of, of eating what you catch. Um, it's funny because I, I've hunted my whole life. I've only hunted birds. I've, I've never hunted big game. My dad never did. And I never got started. I don't have anything against it. I just, again, don't have time for it, but I've hunted, hunted birds, um, pretty much my whole life too. And, uh, the whole thing about the hunting is, uh, is the dog I hunt with, uh, you know, we have hunt with pointing dogs. And so we're hunting upland birds with pointing dogs. And I just really like to see the dog do his thing. And you're, you're much more of an observer. I mean, you're a participant, but much more of an observer. When I go out to hunt for a day, almost always I come home with zero, one or two birds. And I'm perfectly happy with that. But I got to see the dog do his thing, and I got out in great country, and I, you learn stuff, and you see interesting things, and all that. Um, so, you know, I, and I, I mean, I like to eat the birds too. They're, uh, they're, I like them. It's delicious. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But it's uh, no, I guess I've I've never quite taken that that last step. It's probably partly because it just isn't really feasible in most of the places I fish these days. Yeah. So then what's the next step? And you're right. Just this is so dependent on the person. As a mom, I obviously take a lot of pride and joy cooking for my daughter. So I love going and catching us a fish, especially when we're in camp in BC, taking it back and, and enjoying that fish with her together in the cabin. But if I wasn't able to circle all the way back down to where I'd started, I think something would slowly be dying in me in a lot of my fishing. What's, what is your next step in the journey? Well, um, let me, let me totally frank that. Have you, are you still excited? Like, do you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I can't wait to go down and catch and release a trout right now on the boat river. If I can do it the way I want to do it. And this, and I can't help sound like a snob here, but, uh, but what I like to do most is, is fish for rising trout. And if I, if I can go down and find some rising fish and fish to them and catch a couple, yeah, that, I, I, I do get excited about that. But, you know, less excited about 
the other stuff. And I, this is going to make me sound terrible. So don't use this part. <laughs> no, no, no. Cause this is really important. Um, I'm not going to edit this out. Use your words wisely. If you'd like, I'll, I'll, I'll leave what you say, but just make it be something that you want people to hear because I think we need to be honest about it. You know what I mean? I, I, I think I'm, I don't pussyfoot around on the show and I want to be honest for people who are confused about their own journey. Cause there's a lot of them right now. Okay. I, yeah, I suppose. And I think people just have to understand that it won't always be the same. You're not going to have, nothing is going to stay the same. And I don't really know in my circle of people I, I fish with, I don't know many of them that are my age or in that range that do it as hard as we used to. And we talk, we do talk about that. And, and I've even written about this a little bit. Uh, you know, a full day, what I would consider a full day of fishing now is probably about five hours. Whereas it used to be nine or 10 in the morning till dark, you know? So, whoa, I don't, I had a funny conversation with a, a longtime fishing friend a while ago. And, uh, we were, we were talking about this sort of stuff and we used to stay out late, stay out till dark to fish you know, on the bow and other places, drive a couple of hours, fish till dark, you know, which is 10 o'clock or so. Then drive home, then get up and go to work the next morning. We don't do that anymore. And some of that is just natural, uh, the effects of age. But I asked him, I said, do you, uh, I said, I wonder if the fishing right around dark, the dry fly fishing right around the dark, right around dark is on the bow is good these days. And I said, do you know? He said, no. I said, me either. I haven't been out till dark and, I don't even know how many years. It just, you know, when you're done, you're done. And it's oh, okay. And, but here's the thing. I don't know uh, that we enjoy it less because we don't go as hard as we used to. That's, that's kind of the whole thing for me is, uh, you know, when you're young, you go as hard as you can and you like it and you have a great time. And when you're this age, you go a lot more leisurely and slower. But who has the most, gets the most enjoyment? Yeah, dependent. Say. It's funny. I've been exploring this within myself on a, you know, um, whenever that slap of reality hits, I try to pick it apart to figure it out. And I figured out a, a couple of things for myself. I figured out that for me, that I do still have days where I go hard, but they're always because I'm really eager to find adventure or really excited about finding an adrenaline rush somewhere around the, the next bend. It's almost always based on adventure. The days where I used to fish just to fish hard, I found, I, I, looking back now and being totally truthful, I think I was trying to prove something to myself. Oh. It was before, it was before trying to prove anything to anyone else. It was trying to prove to myself, A, that I was a good angler, B, that I was really avid, that this was what I wanted to do. I mean, see, just a big part of me was like, you can't be hardcore if you don't fish for 12 hours a day. I feel like I was constantly trying to prove something to myself. And because every time I went out, there was such a state of discovery that I was going through. I was always learning about myself. But I think, I feel like I just, I know myself so much more now. I have nothing to prove to myself. And I just learn a lot less about myself when I go out there. I mean, I still learn about myself and can hear, you know, hear thoughts that I wouldn't be able to hear otherwise if I was working or busy chasing a toddler, but I just feel like I have a lot less to prove to myself. Is that anything you've ever experienced? Yeah, I think maybe that's what I was trying to say when 
Um, you know, I like to do it the way I like to do it. And, uh, you know, just catching a fish for the sake of catching a fish. Okay. But I, I don't feel driven to do it. Uh, one of my, uh, recent watermarks columns in Fly Fusion is called, uh, I think it was called Why Do We Do It? And I guess I talked about some of the stuff. I can't quite remember what I said, but how did this get to be so important? And, uh, you know, and I think some of the other aspects that it brings are truly are important, you know, being a good steward of the resource and, you know, and being watchdogs and all that sort of stuff that, that truly is important. Um, whether I can catch the biggest fish on the boat today, it's not, it's not that important. Coming up, Jim and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Norvice for making this episode possible. The good folks at Norvice believe that you deserve to expect consistency and efficiency out of your tying system. When tying on the Norvice, you will quickly see the benefits of tying flies while physically spinning the vise. This is a remarkable feature that I strongly recommend watching on their YouTube channel. There are a lot of great rotary vices on the market, but only the Norvice spins the hook. It's for this reason that it's been said that Norvice is the most innovative fly tying system on the market. Never again do you have to wind slack thread onto your bobbin spool. The Norvice Auto Bobbin does the work for you. For more information, visit www.nor-vice.com and check them out on YouTube to see how you can maximize your tying time by relying on the functions and benefits of the tested and true Norvice. So what about now? What are you up to now? Are you still, would you consider yourself in the fly fishing industry? Oh yeah. We're, we're still doing the schools. Uh, and I'm, I'm still writing. I'm, I'm not, uh, editing, uh, anymore. Uh, but I'm still writing for some magazines and we're still teaching fly fishing schools. We are trying to sort of wind it back a little bit. And, uh, so I'm, yes, I would definitely say we're in the fly fishing business in that way. Um, I am also still really interested in the whole writing thing. And I, I would like to, as I get older, do maybe do more um, teaching of writing or writing workshops. We got a, a writing workshop scheduled uh, later this summer. It's a whole weekend thing. And I'm really looking forward to that because you'll know this as a, when you're a writer, you never get to talk about writing to anybody. You can't just bring it up to somebody <laughs> the street you know i wrote a really good paragraph this yeah. morning i feel really good about it <laughs> oh okay great let's get funny yeah, looks total glaze yeah. over yeah like what yeah. um it really is i don't know they call it a lonely profession or something it really it really is and i i like talking about it with people who also want to talk about it and so i i think i'll probably end up doing more of that sort of stuff in the in the waning years of my career or whatever when it comes to writing, how do you stay passionate about it if you don't want to write about how to? Do you find yourself... Well, it's a two-part okay. question. You Let's start with that one, and I'll ask you the second part after I hear your answer. I think most writers would say there has, they have to have some creativity, and there has to be some originality in what you write. While it's not as obvious, I suppose... How-to stuff can be written creatively and in a way that engages engages the reader. You know, that's the objective is to engage the reader, keep them keep them with you till the end of the piece. Um, so, 
it's it's a real type of writing. How to writing is is a very legitimate type of writing, and I, I don't. I would rather write, I guess, about why than how. But there's a way bigger market for how, so you kind of have to do that. Um, and if you can, you know, work on the being original. Um, you know, the originality can come from from three places. People always say, not always. A lot of people say. Oh, the fishing magazines, it's just the same old stuff, you know, rehashed again. It's one more story about strike indicators or you know, mending or something. And, and it's true uh, because there's just, there's only a certain amount of new stuff. And I guess that amount of, the amount of new stuff is probably diminishing as we, as we go forward in time. But the creativity, uh, or the, pardon me, the originality can come from what you say, how you say it. Or in the audience. If the audience hasn't read it, you know, yes, the hardcore people like us have been reading this stuff for decades. And yeah, I saw something like this back in the 80s about whatever this topic is. Okay. But the vast majority of the people reading today haven't, haven't come across that. So, you know, the, the audience can be original or, or what you say, if you really got something really new and that somebody hasn't thought of, okay, great. Or and how you say it. And that's, that's both the creativity and the originality, I think. Do you ever find yourself trying to think of topics that'll stir people up? Like, do you go out of your way to try to find something to stir the pot? Um, not a lot. Because I feel like you do, Jim. <laughs> I feel like I read your articles sometimes okay. and I'm like, ooh. Well, yeah, I like, okay. um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, yeah, I like taking little subtle shots at, at people that I, that I know, uh, and I do that from time to time, uh, especially in Fly Fusion with, you know, somebody named Derek. I, I like to take a run at Derek <laughs> once in a while. Um, and, yeah, I guess I, I do, not in any, in any sort of a, a serious way. I kind of stay out of the, the political stuff because I'm, I'm just not uh, – it's not my uh, strength by any means. Uh, I did just write a piece – a back page uh, seasonable angler piece for fly fishermen that yeah i think it'll stir people up a little bit but in a in a good-hearted sort of a way what's it about it is about the it is called a requiem for matching the hatch okay do do tell yeah it, basically it's like when i grew up learning to fly fish the whole thing was what bug is hatching uh, how you find the, the right fly and, and imitating that when the fish is eating these bugs, ideally on the surface and you got to imitate pale morning duns or blue wing olives or something. And while that's still around, there's been a, it seems to me and what I, what I see in here, maybe it's just where I, where I live and fish a big surge in, um, and I don't know how to put this. Cause I mean, it's, this is tongue in cheek, but big foam bugs. That's all you need to okay. fix home bugs. <laughs> so, and I'm, I, in, in the piece, I, I made up this, this, uh, this, um, make believe scenario of somebody who, who goes, goes fishing and, uh, and comes home and immediately puts the fishing report up on, on Facebook or Instagram and says, man, there were blueing, blueing olives hatching all over the place, fish rising everywhere. And I slayed them on size six Chernobyl ants. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, it seems like there's not as much the, the I don't know a little bit of the 
the focus or appreciation for what I always thought was the the major sort of challenge and confrontation in fly fishing for trout, which is a, a fish feeding on the surface and you've got to imitate what he's feeding on. Seems like that's sort of taken a, uh, I don't know, a backseat to catching catching fish on ridiculous looking flies. Well, it hasn't in New Zealand. New Zealand's still very true to good to matching the hatch. You would love, have you done New Zealand yet? Not, oh, New Zealand. Yes. Not for a long time, but yeah, um, I, I really liked it. I would, yeah, I would go I back. Bet. I would go back. Do you feel like the sport is losing its romance or do you feel like now more than ever, the romance is starting to flourish? Hmm. I, I think I, I, I don't know sure if worry is right, but I, I maybe I, I wonder if um, a lot of people are sort of losing. They know where we are, but they're not quite sure how we got here. And I think there's value in in understanding how we got here, like like just the history of even fly fishing in North America. Um, it's pretty interesting, you know. And and I, I'm just being an old the old guy, but I think it's, there's value and people should know what a Quill Gordon dry fly is and, and <laughs> that sort of stuff. So yeah, I, I worry that some of the, um, the depth of understanding maybe isn't there. I don't know. That's pretty presumptuous of me to say that. No, I'd but, say you're accurate. Yeah. I'd say you're accurate, but I think that the, the desire to learn more about it is there. And I know simply from my audience, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of okay. my listeners are, are younger and, and it's really interesting because I hear from a lot of them saying, I really love your interviews, especially when you sit down with older people in the sport. And I think that's Good. because they are really, they're desperate to learn about the history, but it's very intimidating. I, I have a huge library and I go in there. I haven't read 90% of those books and I don't even know where to start. But then all the history is there. I just don't know where to start. So, so let's, let's give, let's give them a piece. I mean, you just said the, which fly did you say? The quill? I just said Gordon Gordon, just off the top of my head. Gordon. Okay. The quill Gordon. What's the, or here, why don't you think of, take a moment to think of the most interesting historical story you can think of right now for someone who started fly fishing last week. Take your time. Someone who started fly fishing last week. And they're like, oh, well, I mean, I know it's interesting, but wasn't it just a bunch of rich old white guys and didn't it have something to do with England? If you were to say, yeah, but listen to this story, what would that be? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I'm just kind of reaching here, but there, there's a book by uh, Ernest Schwiebert called Trout, uh, which incidentally was the second book called Trout. I don't know how he sort of got away with another book called Trout. The first one was written by a guy named Ray Bergman, and it's a great book written in, I think, the 40s or 50s. But anyway, Schwiebert's Trout came out in the 70s. It's 1,500 pages of everything in the world you could you could ever want to ask about uh, fly fishing for trout and grayling. There's, I don't know, a few hundred illustrations. He did all the illustrations himself. And just the, the depth of knowledge that that guy had about this sport. That's something, you know, that impressed, still impresses me. So that, I don't know whether that's the kind of story you're looking for or not. The other one would be the creative, critical thinking of some of the sports real leaders. And I'm thinking first here of Gary Lafontaine, who um, died a number of years ago from ALS. He, he never took 
the way we used to do things as being just sort of right by default. He would always say, well, I want, I wonder why, why, you know, let me just start at the beginning. Not, I'm not going to do it this way because that's the way we've always done it. And he would, um, you know, got under the water with the snorkel gear to, to look at the bugs as, as they're emerging and to even watch the fish feeding on them. What do they look like? How do they behave? How does my imitation compare? And, and, and he came up with all kinds of unusual flies. If you look at a lot of his flies in his books, you think, that looks stupid, but read about it. And he'd say, well, that, I, that works under certain situations because when the light is low and, and the sun is low in the sky, there's more red in the spectrum that the, this sort of stuff. And, uh, these are the, the, this sparkly antron looks like the air bubbles that are attached to the body of the caddis pupil when it's swimming to the surface, stuff like that. And you, after you look at his stupid looking flies and you read about why he, why they look like that and you say, Oh, okay. Now I understand. That makes sense. So that kind of thinking impresses me. Um, And it's really interesting when you can learn more about the person as well, right? Like that for me. So I'm a history buff. And what you just said about the flies, yeah, that's interesting. And you have my attention temporarily. (laughs) But then if you told me the story about Gary LaFontaine, and admittedly, I don't know a lot about him, but let's just take someone like Joe Brooks, who is a a historical figure where I do know a bit of his history because I podcasted one of his relatives and watched the documentary. Yeah. Uh, Joe Brooks, Joe Brooks Jr., who actually lives here in Australia. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, And have you watched the doc? Have you watched the documentary? I think I've seen a trailer or something. I I will, though. I'll also tell you this uh, because it relates to what we said. Uh, Joe Brooks uh, was Lee Perkins fly fishing hero. Oh, well, that's not a surprise, actually, come to think of it. He was um, he was a mentor to a lot of those guys, wasn't he? He Or not a mentor, but a, a figure. Yeah, he, he was a trailblazer, I think. And, um, you know, fishing out west and, you know, Yellowstone Park and all that sort of stuff. He was, he wanted to, uh, he wanted people to know, know that they could fly fish and not, not present it as something that was too difficult to do, but that it was something that you could learn to do really easily. And so. See, so knowing these guys' stories, so beyond the fly, but the person themselves, the trailblazers themselves, that's really interesting to me. That gets me really excited. That makes me want to go and fish the streams that Roderick Haig Brown did. Yeah, yeah. Because I know a little bit more about the man himself. So, I mean, obviously, that's not for everybody, but there, you're right. There is something about understanding more of the history to feel connected to it, right? Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, just as a, a little aside, a long time ago in my first uh, round of fly fishing TV, we did a, we did a show at Haig Brown House in Campbell River. And uh, that was really neat because we, we went out and, and fished the pool kind of behind the garden uh, out there. You know, and I found myself thinking, he may have stood on these rocks. Right. That's what I you think know? all the time. All exactly. Kind of I really like that stuff. And yeah. I like fishing places I've read about and they were significant. And um, the, then we went in in the house and the guy, the curator, whatever you call it, it was a kind of a historic place. Um, we opened the closet door and there was this fishing vest hanging on the, on the, you know, backside of the door. And so we, we looked in it and there was this pipe and there was tobacco still in the pipe. <laughs> but, oh, and then, okay, this goes farther. I, uh, I took a, um, I can't remember how, but there, oh, they had been cutting down some, some wood trimming or some trees or something there. 
And so I asked the guy who was, you know, in charge of the place, I said, can I have a little piece of this wood? And he said, okay, sure. So he gave me a little piece of acacia wood. And I, um, later on, a, a guy was building a bamboo rod for me and he was going to build the real seat. And I said, hold on a minute. So I gave him the piece of wood. He, so he, he put the real seat, uh, the, the wooden filler in the real seat is from that piece of wood from a tree that Roderick Haig Brown planted. Oh, so, so that's the kind of stuff I, I really think is cool. See, and, and it's funny. I just did an interview about this with the magazine. We were talking about why people fish bamboo rods. And he was asking me, the journalist was right, asking me why I enjoy fishing bamboo rods. And that's, this is exactly what I was saying is that I had started to lose a lot of the, a lot of the passion, but reading the history and going to these streams and fishing rods that a lot of these guys were, were using, or in your case, you know, parts of materials that were on their property or that they planted. That is such a, that, that is, that is a connection that'll bring you back as well. Right. Yeah. And that's the stuff I like. Uh, I'm much more interested in that than in (sighs) Euro nymphing. I'm sorry. I said it. Yeah. (laughs) That's okay. It's a different, you know, different, it's different for everybody depending on the stage that we're in. I should um, qualify what I just said about, you know, people not understanding the history of the sport. You know, for a long time, what what was really apparent in the fly fishing industry and in the sport was that there weren't enough young people taking it up. I think that's been changing some. Is that your sense? I, I think uh, it's been growing. <laughs> Jim, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> absolutely. It's like it's okay. absolutely blowing up. It's okay. blowing up. I don't know what yeah. the stats are showing and what license sales and all those all that data is showing, but I can tell you. Just okay. by my own observation, yeah, uh, and social media does highlight it. But yes, I would say there are a, a lot more younger people. Yeah, and that's that's good. We needed that, and I, I think we can probably thank social media for that. Um, in a lot, in a lot of ways, yeah, yeah. I rem- I remember it being so painful. Oh, sorry, what's that? And you doing what you're doing, and other people, you know, it's it's good. Thanks. I remember. I remember specifically, actually, and it would have been. I would have been, well, I would have been 23 and I'm 37 now. So however many years ago that was, I was driving with my boyfriend at the time. And I think at the time I was getting bullied on Facebook or something. And I remember saying to him, I can't wait till there are other young women doing this. So I'm not just the old, this is so selfish and so horrible, but I'm going to admit it so that I'm not the only one getting beat on all the time. And that mm. wasn't out of, I wasn't being malicious to other women. I just wanted to be able to have my tribe so that together yeah. we could stand, stand united and not constantly be getting pissed on. Sorry. That's really vulgar, but that's, that's what it felt like all the time. And so, um, I just remember going from feeling so alone back then to looking at it now, I would never have felt like I did back then if I, if if I was living in a day like we have today, there's so many of us, not just women, but young men yeah. and women together who can team up yeah. together and, and support each other. Yeah. Well, that's great. And, and, you know, I think, I think you've had a lot to do with, with the women part of it. I mean, and it's. Thanks. Good, good on you for doing it. And thank you for doing it for all of us. It's, it, it needed to happen. And so. You yeah, and well, it was, it was always going to, it was always going to happen. It's just the evolution of us. 
Um, yeah. So what's yeah. what's next for you, Jim? Um, I, I am going to include links to your school and everything on the okay. write up. But if anyone's in the area with this pandemic, oh, wait a second, you've got a workshop, but the pandemic's happening. Yes, uh, it's it's a there's a small. We're actually combining a fly fishing school weekend with the writing workshop weekend, and there's a be a total of I think eight people, uh, in in a bed and breakfast to the big one with lots lots of room, lots of space. So we're going to follow all the all the rules, and yeah, so it, it'll it should be fine. We're uh, we're not, and and the large the fishing stuff will be outdoors, and it's easy to separate yourself there and actually a lot of the writing stuff will probably do outside too because it's probably going to be hot Uh, well look i'm going to let you get back to your night because it's getting late there um is there anything that i mean you've got an entire lifetime of this but so i know i've missed stuff but is there anything in particular that i've missed that you would like to add or to ask me no i i don't think so i I think you're really doing a good job on on this stuff I've, i've listened to a few of the podcasts and you know with Gary Borger and John Garrick and, and, um, I, you know, what's great is, uh, that you're, you're not constrained by time and, and these things, at least not in a big way. Uh, you know, a lot of times when somebody, you get an interview, it's like 12 questions, then I got to hang up and go write the story or whatever. And so uh, maybe that's what you're going to do now. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> no, it's no. Been good, good to have gone a little farther down some of these rabbit trails and, uh, I think because you do that is why you get good stuff out of people. So, Thank you. Yeah, no, I got sick to death of being told that I had to do uh, have time limitations, sponsorship limitations, mm. uh, any sort of agenda. So the show is exactly as, I mean, it, it's, it's, there's nobody is behind this pulling strings. It's just you guys telling us your stories. So yeah. thank you for sharing. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. I, I have enjoyed it and you should keep up the good work and, um, Doing what you're doing with that little girl of yours and the rest of your family and your dog and everything. So you would Thank normally you. be in BC now, right? Yeah, we were in BC and then this whole thing hit and we did the frantic rush back. Because the problem is, is obviously with Colby, he can't be here uh, alone. He needs me here. But uh, so I couldn't go anywhere anyway right now, if I'm being totally frank. But also if I go to BC right now, I can't get back into, it's, it's unlikely I'd be able to get back into Australia. Right. Right. Uh, without having to pay for two weeks of quarantine out of my own pocket. And I just, can you imagine being in a hotel room with a two-year-old by yourself? My palms are sweating just thinking about it. <laughs> it's just, it's just a horrible thought. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, but, but I'll, I'll go back when, when I can. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. so Jim, just so people listening, are we going to be able to see some of your writing on Anchored Outdoor as we've been talking about yes. having yes. you do some uh, writing? Yes. I, I haven't done it yet. But uh, but I know that uh, I uh, we've talked about it and I do have plans. So I will I'll get right on it. I'll get right on it. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll wrap it up, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on okay. to the show. Great. I really appreciate it, April. Keep up the good work. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. I read all of them and cannot thank you guys enough for tuning in. See you soon.